Well, our passage this morning began with uh, strong words. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. But then ends with soft words. I speak to you as children, widen your hearts also. You might be wondering how these two could be connected. Well, the answer is they're connected by what's said in between. Not just literally in between, but uh, Paul takes us from a, a, a journey, takes us on a journey from the judgment seat of Christ to this appeal to widen our hearts. In this passage, we see a series of four great gospel statements. And each of them is followed by an implication of these statements for how the apostles and therefore how we should go about a life and ministry that is shaped by the gospel. We know that the setting of this letter, as, uh, as I've talked about already, is that Paul is seeking to restore and renew his relationship with the Corinthian Christians. It was fractured, it was tense and, and he wants to give them a confidence in his ministry, the, the ministry that God has given him and the other apostles for their sake. It's, he, as he said, he's not commending himself. Uh, he, wants that, he wants them to have a confidence to hear what he's saying as the word of God. The foundation for any true reconciliation must be the gospel. So that's why he alternates between statements about the gospel and those comments about the nature of his ministry. So the first great gospel statement that he makes is there in verse 10. We must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Now, does this verse frighten you? The thought of being before the judgment seat with all of your secret sins rolled out. Are you thinking, that doesn't sound like a gospel statement. How is that good news? Back in the 1980s, there was a a popular Christian song uh, that I and all my contemporaries would listen to uh, and it went like this. On that day when we will pay for all the deeds we've done, good and bad, they'll all be had to be seen by everyone. And when you're called to stand and tell just what you saw in me, More than anything I know, I want your words to be, and then the song goes on. As I remembered that song, I thought, yeah, I I heard it so many times, I, I can sing it off by heart. But that song reflected a, a, this popular idea that Christians will still be somehow accountable for our sins. And also that idea that somehow others will have a say in whether I should be considered worthy of heaven or not. 
But that idea is actually more Islamic than it is Christian. That's not what this verse is saying. What it's saying is a statement about every single human being. Every person ultimately is accountable to God. And more specifically, every person is accountable towards the one whom the Father has appointed as the judge of the living and the dead, the Lord Jesus. So the we must embraces all of humanity. There's no exception because every human being is made in the image of God, therefore every human being is morally accountable to God. No one will be exempt from standing before him when he comes. Jesus says in Matthew 26, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, then he will sit on his glorious throne. Before him will be gathered all the nations and he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right but the goats on the left. Now, the heart of the Gospel is that Jesus is Lord over all, that he is the judge of the living and the dead. And what makes it good news for those who believe is that that day won't be a day of assessment when he weighs up our good deeds and our bad deeds. deeds. It will be a day of vindication. It will be a day when Christ, our judge, presents us to his Father, not clothed in our own works, good or bad, but clothed in his righteousness that he has freely given us as a gift. The righteousness established by his life, his death, his resurrection on our behalf. To put it another way, the only thing that will be on display when we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, provided our faith is in him, is all that Jesus has done in his body, credited to our account. While all that we have done in our body, good and bad, will be gone forever, separated from us as far as the east is from the West. So every every single person will stand before the judgment seat of Christ. The implication of that is knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade others. So what he says in verse 10 is the reason he says in verse 11... We persuade others. The fear of the Lord isn't a fear of punishment because I may not measure up to the standard of living that pleases him. It's not fear that I'll face judgment that should be my motivation for sharing the gospel. What a terrible way to operate, to share the good news out of fear. 
It's ultimately a, a selfish motivation, isn't it? And it sees people that I share the gospel with just as a way for me to try and secure my salvation or to ease my conscience. It turns evangelism into something that we do to people rather than what Christ does through us for people. The fear of the Lord is a a term that's repeated often through the scriptures and it's not a cringing terror kind of fear. It's a good fear of the Lord that brings freedom. It's when we see that this all-powerful, majestic, holy and glorious God who has the power to give life and to destroy, the one who owes us nothing but whom we owe everything, has actually set his love upon us. He forgives us, he restores us, he accepts us and calls us his children. Romans 8.15 puts it this way, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The fear of judgment leads to slavery. It leads to us just doing what we have to do, being obedient to God because we want to escape judgment. But the Holy Spirit comes and shows us that because of the cross of Christ, we're free from sin and death, free from the demands of the laws, we're brought into the Father's family. He doesn't remove the fear of the Lord, but he changes our orientation so that we now delight in him rather than fear his judgments. So fear of judgment brings slavery The fear of the Lord brings freedom. We see this fear of the Lord displayed perfectly in Jesus. In Isaiah 11 verse 3, this is a passage that predicts the coming of Jesus, the the coming of the servant of the Lord. It says, His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. Uh, I'll keep reading, even though it's not up on the screen. He, so he will not judge by what his eyes see or dispute, decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth, and he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked." Jesus' delight was in the glory and honour of his Father. So he sought to do his will. So now if we've come to know Jesus as Lord and Christ, seated at the Father's right hand with all authority, our response isn't to treat him as our pal or even as our role model, but it's to fall at his feet and to worship him as Lord and to ask him to reveal to us his will so that we may go and do it. Knowing this should give us not just a delight that he is the one who has satisfied God's justice and he now sits on the throne as the ruler over the whole universe, but it also gives us a sense of solemn 
responsibility. We are those who are now commissioned by him to be his ambassadors, his heralds. And that's the motivation that comes from the fear of the Lord. We know that every person we ever meet will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. You will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ. Will you be there under condemnation for your sin or will you be there rejoicing for his grace that's available to you in him? So this certainty of coming judgment, the judgment seat of Christ, it assures us of the absolute necessity of the gospel, both for us and for those with whom he calls us to share. The fact that uh, Jesus, who comes as judge, is also the one who's freely offering grace and mercy. How critical is it, both that we believe that gospel, but also for others to hear, so that they too may believe and have that joy in the fear of the Lord. Go back to that. Now, for some reason, uh, the ESV, this version here, in verse 11, says uh, we try to we persuade others. The actual word that's translated others there is actually the word anthropos. It's the word for humanity. It should say we persuade people. The gospel message is specifically for human beings. Not only because we are the only creatures who are morally accountable to God, so without exception we all qualify in our need for the gospel. But also because the message of the gospel is for every human being without distinction. There's not one person, there's not one people or tribe or nation or tongue that is exempt. The gospel is for humanity. Do you remember when we saw that uh, Paul's first time in Corinth was uh, one of the milestones in considering his call as an apostle to the Gentiles? Uh, Let's remind ourselves of this. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshipper of God, his house was next door to the synagogue. The Corinthian Christians knew very well that they were believers in Jesus, they were Gentiles, but they were believers in the Jewish Messiah, only because God had opened wide his heart as he promised to Abraham, to include not just Jews, but Gentiles, people from all nations. They, the Corinthian Christians, were living proof 
of that. In the Gospel, in Christ, people are no longer defined by their race or their skin colour or their language. They are simply human beings, equal in status and equal in their moral responsibility before God. There were plenty of voices at the time that were still saying the gospel is only for Jews or anyone who first converts to Judaism but it was the work of the Spirit and what he was doing through Paul specifically that opened the hearts of the Jerusalem Christians, of the Jewish Christians to welcome in these Gentiles. And that's what Paul's getting at really in verses 12 and 13. The Corinthians and us have a wonderful privilege of being included in God's people because it's through people like Paul and others who have faithfully preached the gospel to us Gentiles. So that leads us then to the second great gospel statement in verse 14. The love of Christ controls us because we've concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. Now we should hear that word all there in this context, not to mean every individual without exception, but every people without distinction. In other words, as I've just been saying, it's not just for Jews, but for all peoples, nations, tribes and tongues. Jesus died for all peoples. And so in him there's no longer Jew or Greek, circumcised, uncircumcised, male or female, slave or free. In the Old Testament, God set his special electing love upon Israel, but now in Christ that love has been extended to all nations. This is the love of Christ that should compel us. The love of which we can't plumb the heights, the the depths and the height and the width and the length. It takes hold of us and compels us to make him known to everyone. So while we might say that it's the fear of the Lord that motivates us, it's the love of Christ that gives us no choice. You can't truly know the love of Christ and keep it to yourself. So Christ died for all, therefore all have died. The death of Christ firstly was a statement of judgment against humanity. Jesus, the last Adam, walked the earth as a representative of the whole of humanity. He took on our Adamness and with it he also took on God's righteous verdict against Adam, guilty of sin, deserving of death, banished from the presence of God's life-giving glory. So in that sense, when Christ died as the last Adam, all who were in the first Adam were put to death. 
The cross was the open statement of God's judgment. The cross was the final judgment. The judgment seat of Christ, in a sense, will only be the confirmation of what took place at the cross. So the cross was a statement of God's judgment on human sin, but the goal of his death wasn't condemnation. If it were, he would have remained dead and all of us would still be with him in the grave. But his resurrection declares to us that condemnation has finished for those who believe. By nature we stand condemned to death in his death, but by grace through faith we stand justified and alive in him in his resurrection. And our resurrection in Christ then means a massive reorientation. We no longer live for ourselves, but for him. The reason we had to die with him was because our lives were all about us. Now that we've been made alive in him, our lives are all about him. The implication for ministry and life is we now regard no one according to the flesh. What does that mean, to regard someone according to the flesh? Well, it could mean a number of things, but it's explained by uh, the two parallel parallel statements. Uh, how, How our regard for Christ has changed and then how our regard for people must change. So what does it mean to regard Christ according to the flesh? Well, I think that refers to how we would see Christ if we knew nothing of him beyond his death and burial. If all we know was when he walked the streets of Judea teaching the word of God, announcing the kingdom of God was at hand, walking the road to the cross, being touched and seen by his disciples with his glory veiled and with the disciples never fully grasping his identity or the implications of what he came to do. It was only after the resurrection and Pentecost that their eyes were opened to see the fullness of who he is. That's the danger of what, uh, what has been called red-letter Christianity. Uh, that's a view that says that the, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' uh, moral, ethical teaching, is at the heart of the Christian faith. That view teaches Jesus just as a good moral teacher, as probably the average Australian would consider Jesus to be. They regard Jesus just according to the flesh. The Jesus who, without the resurrection, would just be laying down for us a new and tougher law. You don't actually need a risen Jesus to be a red-letter Christian. But Jesus told his disciples it would only be when the Spirit came that they'd see the full picture. 
It's only then that they would be empowered to stand up and to declare the kingdom of God that's come in the risen, ascended Jesus. It's in light of Pentecost and the ongoing Spirit's work that we no longer regard or proclaim Jesus only on what is in the first part of the Gospels because what happened there was just an anticipation of the fulfilment that would come in the resurrection and ultimately in the new creation. So that's why we must now look at other people differently. If someone is in Christ, the old has gone for them. The person who once stood condemned under the law, condemned to wrath, cast out of God's presence, that's gone. They are now a new person. They now stand before God with no condemnation. There's someone who has been brought near to God by the blood of Christ. Someone who has a glorious destiny to, to see and be clothed with the glory of God in the face of Christ, in the new creation. So we must now no longer regard one another in light of what we were, but in light of what we will become in Christ. The third great gospel statement in verse 19, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. Now do you see how the gospel here tells us that the basis for our reconciliation with God is the way he views us in Christ. Does God regard us according to the flesh or does he regard us according to the new creation? He no longer counts our trespasses against us. Now that's the work of justification. God has taken the step towards us. He's dealt with our trespasses long before we even knew that they were trespasses or before we even knew that we'd trespassed against him. The cross didn't merely create the possibility for our sins to be removed. It actually did it. I was saved not when I chose to believe in Jesus. My salvation was accomplished and complete when Jesus cried out, it is finished 2,000 years ago. My believing was simply the point at which the Holy Spirit enabled me to receive what had already been done. So since God no longer regards you according to the flesh, you may be reconciled to him. You are reconciled to him. So the implication is that we implore people on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. He's talking here more about the the manner of our proclamation rather than the content of what we say. We implore or beg. It's a word that's often used to mean pray. The call to repent and believe is 
a command, but it's God who issues the command to all people everywhere to repent. Not us. We don't speak with our own authority. We don't call people to obey us. Our job isn't to command repentance, but to communicate the command of God and then to urge people, to plead, to implore with them to hear his command to believe in his son. We ourselves know firsthand the blessing and joy of being reconciled to God. That repentance isn't about what we do, it's about coming back into a relationship with the Father. And so when we share the gospel, we speak from first-hand experience. We speak of what we have seen and heard and known, that which we know to be true, not just because it's true and it makes sense, but because we know it's a life-transforming reality in our own lives. So that, that appeal, that imploring comes from our own hearts, not just a statement of facts. The fourth gospel statement in verse 21, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now here we see a a clear statement of uh, that theological term, penal substitutionary atonement, meaning the penalty, penal, has been paid by someone who is my substitute and therefore atonement, reconciliation, has been accomplished. It's the great exchange in which Jesus knew my sin in order that I might know his righteousness. But see that it's, it's more than that, isn't it? Jesus was made to be sin and in exchange we become the righteousness of God. So we shouldn't think of Jesus bearing our sin as if he was just kind of carrying them along with him in a bag like a courier, not really identifying with us as sinners. As if the Father said, I'll pour out my wrath on Jesus, but not really. It's only on the sins that he's holding. Biblically, God does not separate the sin from the sinner. His wrath isn't just directed towards our sin, but towards the person who sins. Sinning is not what we do, it's who we are by nature. We're not sinners because we sin, we sin because we're sinners. So Jesus not only took up our sin, but he took up our whole identity that is defined by our sin. He became sin for us. So as a result, we don't merely take on righteous deeds to replace our evil deeds, our sinful deeds. No, our whole identity that was defined by sin is now defined by the righteousness of God. So we don't just do righteous things, we become 
the righteousness of God. He views us as righteous because of the imputed, the the free gift of Christ's righteousness to us. And his goal is that this free gift of righteousness credited to our account will work its way through us to the point where we are thoroughly and completely righteous, free forever from the power and the presence of sin. Not in this life, but in the new creation. What's the implication of that then? Paul says, working together with him then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. There's a way to receive the grace of God in vain, in an empty way. It's what uh, has been called cheap grace. Uh, that was a phrase coined by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was a, uh, a Lutheran pastor in the Second World War, uh, imprisoned by the Nazis. Uh, and he wrote in his book, uh, The Cost of Discipleship, he said, cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance, baptism without church discipline, communion without confession, absolution without personal confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship, grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. But costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again, the gift which must be asked for, the door at which a person must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it's a grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It's costly because it costs a person their life. And it's grace because it gives a person the only true life. It's costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it's costly because it costs God the life of his son. You were bought at a price. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it's grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. So how do we know if we have cheap grace? How do we know that we have received the grace of God in vain? Well, very simply, if our lives now look no different to how they looked before we believed in Jesus. The righteousness of God that we've become in Christ isn't a ticket to heaven when we die. The day of salvation isn't some distant point in the future. It's the eternal life of Christ that starts now. That quotation there, behold now is the favourable time, behold now is the day of salvation, comes from Isaiah 49. It doesn't say, um, 
it goes on to say, I, um, I will listen to you and help you. But it doesn't say, I'll listen to you at some point in the future. I'll help you at some point in the future. No, it's, it's the present tense. Salvation has been accomplished already and the, the call to respond and to know this salvation is today in the present. See what that meant for Paul and what it means for anyone who's willing to take up their cross and to follow Jesus. There's a willingness to endure much for the gospel there in verses five, uh, verse 4 and 5. Hardships, beatings, imprisonments, labours, hunger. But to respond to all of that with the fruit of the Spirit, verses 6 and 7, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, genuine love, truthful speech and the power of God. That's the righteousness of God working in us and through us, transforming us. We can be willing to lose everything for his sake because we know that our identity and calling is in Christ despite what the world says of us. We may be treated as imposters. We may be unknown. We may be dying. We may be punished. We may be sorrowful. We may be poor. We may have nothing in the eyes of the world. But in Christ... We know that the opposite is true of us. We are in fact true in his eyes. We are well known by him. We are alive in him. We are rejoicing in him. We share in all of his riches and in him we possess all things. Now, why is Paul saying all of these things here? Well, because he's leading to these final words that we heard at the start. If we're going to have wide open hearts to one another, we first need to have our hearts widened by the love of Christ in the word of the gospel. We need to see how in Christ... The Father says to us, my heart is wide open to you. We need to look at the crucified and risen Jesus and see that in him, the Father speaks to us as children. How he pours his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he's given us and he widens our hearts towards him. Only then will we have that interior hospitality, the ability to then include others in our lives, to share the joys and the the pains of life as we journey together towards the new creation. So before you try to have a wide heart towards others, make sure your heart is wide open to God. Just picture in your mind Lynn sitting there opening the heart. Open your heart. Have a wide heart towards God. Make sure that you know and believe 
that his heart is wide open to you in Jesus Christ. And then you will have that capacity to widen your hearts to one another.